Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the effort of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. You may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and important and significant. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade. If freedom is to be saved, it requires a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. We have a great episode for you guys, but before we get into that, I want to thank my sponsors over at BioWave. BioWave is a non-opioid way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. It's VA-recognized, VA-prescribed, FDA-cleared, and made in America. BioWave is used by over 30 VAs and even professional sports teams. If you are a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, visit BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost. You can visit BioWave.com customers biowave.com slash testimonials or biowave.com slash VA. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a very special guest on with me today, the author of Foxtrot and Kandahar, a former CIA officer, Dwayne Evans. Dwayne, how's it going? Going going great. I appreciate you having me on your show, John. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Now, we're going to talk about several things. Obviously, we're going to talk about your experiences in Afghanistan. As you went into detail in your book, uh, discussing your time there. But before we get into all of that, can we talk about what you were doing prior to uh, the agency? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, I, I served about six years as an uh, Army uh, active duty officer. I was a military intelligence officer by uh, branch. 
but I, and I served in tactical units. I served with the 82nd Airborne Division and uh, 7th Special Forces Group. Uh, you know, uh, I went through the Special Forces Officer Course and was Special Forces Qualified, although at the time, uh, back in the day when I was in the Army, Special Forces was not a branch. Uh, you uh-huh. didn't wear the crossed arrows like you do now. You just wore whatever branch insignia you wore. So I wore MI branch insignia, even though I was serving with a Special Forces uh, unit. So this was before the uh, 18 series designation, right? Yes, that's right. I got, I got out of the Army right as that was coming, or at least they were saying they were going to start it. In fact, I got a letter from the Department of Army asking me if I'd, like, if I'd be interested in it because they were going to be looking for volunteers. But uh, I was right almost to leave the Army and go into the, go in, and actually move to the agency at that point. And I thought, you know, the Army, knowing the Army, it's going to take them, take them a while to get this thing off the ground. And it yeah. did. It was, another, it was another five years before they actually stood the branch up. Okay. And um, so when you were, you were at this point uh, in the Army and you already had known that you wanted to go the agency route? Yeah, I'd actually been looking more at uh, federal law enforcement. My father had been in federal law enforcement, and I was kind of trying to follow in his footsteps, <clears throat> although I kind of somewhat ironically, he's the one that pointed out the ad in the Army Times uh, from the CIA uh, saying they were looking for people and said, you might want to think about applying there. And uh, so I did, and it just worked out that uh, their application process went more smoothly for me and quickly. And uh, ended up uh, going into Central Intelligence Agency as opposed to federal law enforcement. Of course, the CIA is not in any way a law enforcement agency. Uh, it's an intelligence agency. But it was anyway, it was kind of a change of course of what I had intended, but it, it worked out well. Yeah, I guess sometimes things just happen that way, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so, obviously, you know, things that you did there is you know, classified and stuff like that. Is there anything you can talk about as far as uh, your, your kind of role that you work there? Yeah, I, c- I can talk about that. Yeah, I, I came into the agency coming out of the Army, uh, you know, went directly from the Army. There was no downtime at all. And, uh, you know, I, had, I was a military intelligence officer. So I, I had a kind of a background in intelligence. Of course, it wasn't intelligence in the same sense of, of what, you, what you think of as, as Central Intelligence Agency, what they do. But I, I, I came in as what they call a, a case officer or an operations officer. And those officers are responsible for, um, you know, basically identifying, uh, developing, uh, recruiting and handling uh, human sources that provide uh, intelligence that the U.S. government is, is, is seeking. And uh, that was what I went in as. Of course, the agency has a lot of different other fields, but that was the one that I was I was put in. You, you know, there's analysts, uh, there's reports officers, there's you name it, and you can probably find it in, in the CIA, but uh, I was an, op- an operations officer. Okay, so now your book, uh, Foxtrot and Kandahar, focuses on a period of time in your life when you were in Afghanistan and um, and you guys were doing a bunch of different things there, obviously, um, or, or not obviously, but this was in the beginning of the, the war in Afghanistan, so things were a little bit different then. Um, can we talk about some of the, the things that led up to you going over there and, and what motivated you to, to get on a team to get over there? Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, the book is, is exclusively focused on basically from 9-11 to, uh, to December of, of 2001 when Kandahar fell. Uh, I became a team leader and, and led the first team into Kandahar. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, what? So basically, it all started with 9/11. I happened to be—I was actually on leave, but I was invited by a friend of mine who was an FBI special agent to come over to FBI headquarters uh, to take a tour with with a group of foreign dignitaries that he was going to be bringing through the FBI headquarters. And this, again, he was a good friend of mine who I'd worked with overseas. And so I was on leave. I just come back from an overseas assignment and I was waiting for my assignment, which wasn't going to come around for another six weeks. And so I, I went over to the FBI headquarters uh, and it happened to be on uh, 9-11, the day of the, uh, the attacks in, uh, in, against us by Al Qaeda. And uh, I was in the special I was in the operations center of the FBI when those attacks started taking place. So I was, you know, I was like everyone when I saw what was going on. I was, I was completely appalled at what I saw. I knew instantly it had to be Al Qaeda that was behind it. We'd been receiving warnings for, for some time now. The agency had, and the intel community in general had been receiving warnings that something was building, something was going to happen. So when uh, those planes, especially when the second plane hit the top, hit the tower, I said, "It's Al Qaeda," and and so. Uh, that morning, after they evacuated Washington D.C. because of their, they're worried about uh, you know attacks hitting uh, government buildings, which of course the Pentagon was struck. Um, I went straight from the FBI headquarters over to to my headquarters, which had been evacuated as well. I didn't think about that when I went over there, okay. and I went over there to say, hey, I'm I'm coming. I want to come off leave. I want to be part of whatever it is we're going to do about this. And that's kind of how it all started. I was one of the, I was basically on the ground floor of the organization that the agency stood up called, uh, it was part of the counterterrorist center called the Special Operations Group. And I, I was part of, you know, kind of one of the very first people in there on that. And, uh, and basically what uh, transpired were, were, was that the, the plan, the agency, and, and some people may not be aware of this, but the agency in those early days actually played a very central role in uh, what went on in Afghanistan, uh, the the president, President Bush, at the t- his administration, they did not want to invade uh, Afghanistan with conventional forces, and they were looking for some other solution. And uh, the agency looked at, t- turned to the agency and, and said, you know, hey, do you guys, what's your plan? And and Counterterrorist Center actually developed the plan, which was uh, pretty simple and, and uh in its concept, and that was to uh, team up CIA and special forces together, send them into Afghanistan to work with Afghans on the ground who are already or would be engaged in combat with the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And uh, that was that was that was the plan: use the Afghan fighters that were already there as the surrogate ground force. That way, we didn't have to pour in our conventional forces in there. Uh, you know, let them be the, the surrogate force and we provide the critical support they needed. Uh, in our case, in the agency's case, it was uh, to provide intelligence to them, to provide uh, uh, lethal material to them, such as, you know, arms and, and uh, ammunition. In the case of special forces, their primary role was to call in fire, uh, close air support uh, against uh, the forces that the Talib- that the uh, Afghans were engaged in, primarily, you know, Taliban, but also Al Qaeda, who was joined up with the uh, Taliban as well. So uh, that's that's what I was doing initially. I was in in Washington. Um, was this Seventh Special Forces Group or the first teams in there, or the, uh, the first SF teams that would come in uh, again with the with the agency guys were uh, fifth fifth group. Fifth group. Okay. Uh, it was fifth group and. Uh, 
and each each team basically there was one team that went in initially and it is all agency that was first team on the ground it was on the ground within a few days after 9-11 and that, that's because the agency had maintained relationships with uh these afghan elements that were in still in afghanistan fighting we had maintained relationships with them for many years particularly with the northern alliance which was up in the, the northern part of afghanistan and still held territory in fact, it basically had an army, and they were the they were fighting against the um, the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and we had maintained a, a liaison relationship with them. And over the years, we'd sent teams in there to just you know keep in touch with them and, and that kind of thing. And so when 9/11 happened, we said, okay, we're going to have to really get in bed with them in a big way. And so uh, an agency team went in almost immediately, and I, I missed by a day getting on that team myself. But it was led by a guy named Gary Schroen, very senior, experienced agency officer. Uh, and he led that team in there and uh, hooked up with the Northern Alliance. And uh, then the next step in that was to get the Special Forces team in there as well. And for, and for reasons that I'm not 100% clear on, it was it sounded like it was a bureaucratic reason, within the Department of Defense, it actually was kind of a painful process for them to um, – you know, identify and get a team out there to uh, the Northern Alliance to link up with our guys out there. But it took about, I think, a month. Uh, but they did get a finally got the first fifth group team out there. And then after that, all the other teams began to be identified and it flowed much more smoothly. And uh, we spent we sent a total of five teams to the north, uh, again, agency and special forces. And then uh, those teams working with the Northern Alliance, what they would do basically, they'd work with the major commanders up in the Northern Alliance who were fighting, and they would provide this, these, this support I mentioned earlier to them, and they started having really good success. I did not get onto one of those initial teams. They were primarily made up of what we call uh, paramilitary officers in CIA, and I was, even though I came out of a special forces background, I did not come into the, into the CIA as a paramilitary officer. I came in as a traditional uh, operations officer, case officer. But our teams were made up primarily of these uh, paramilitary officers with occasional person who had either language expertise or had some other uh, area expertise that they needed or a medical person that we had, of course, had medical people going in to support these teams. Uh, so it was it was a little bit more difficult for me to get on one of those teams because I was not a paramilitary officer. Oh, so but, just for the audience who, who might not be aware of what a paramilitary officer is, these are, mm -hmm. are individuals who are uh, basically qualified as like uh, for lack of a better term, a gunfighter. Well, yeah, they all, they all come out of the military services. Uh, often they come out of special operations units. Not always, not always out of special operations units, but but often they are. They, you know, special forces, rangers, uh, Delta, SEALs, Marine Force Recon. But not all of them come from that. Some of them are straight leg infantry. Some of them are, you know, come from uh, other other areas. But they they come in there, and so they have these hard, hard skills, you know, military hard skills that they bring with them that are current, they bring with them uh, to the agency. And then the agency trains them up further, uh, gives them some specialized training, uh, you know, also and cross trains them in, in basic, basic skills like I had as an operations officer, uh, which in other words, they know, they also learn how to handle agents and, and report intelligence. So they're kind of a, a hybrid officer. And they're, they were particularly well suited for Afghanistan because of the, that, that the hybrid skills that they had. Uh, again, I had some military skills, but they were pretty old by the time 9/11 uh, happened. I'd been out of the army for about 18 years at that point. But because I, but because I did have those skills, um, 
it made me, even though I wasn't a paramilitary officer, it made it a little bit easier for me to finally get onto one of the teams. And, uh, and what happened in my case was myself and another officer who had retired out of the army and who was, uh, in fact, he'd retired out of Delta force and he was now an agency officer. He and I were uh, dispatched to go to Islamabad in Pakistan to start working with our station there to see what we could get going in Southern Afghanistan because everything had been happening in the North. And the Northern Alliance was making progress and ultimately would, you know, drive the Taliban back. Ultimately, they would capture Kabul. But nothing was really going on in the south. So our mission was to get out there and get something going in southern uh, Afghanistan. And, and basically what that translated into was, were to, well, we joined up with uh, two Afghan leaders. One team called Echo Team uh, joined up with Hamid Karzai. And I was actually on Echo Team for about 10 days prior to deploying into Afghanistan when we were in uh, Pakistan. And that's in, oh, this is all in my book. Uh, and then uh, I ended up not going into Afghanistan. I actually kind of got booted off the, off the airlift because um, we had too much gear and too many people. So three people had to be left behind. And so two of the two of the special forces guys were left behind, and I was I was Echo Teams. I was the only non-paramilitary officer, so they uh, I, I was left behind with the idea that we'd be coming in on the next uh, when we ever we did a resupply. Uh, but it turned out the next day they decided they wanted to send yet another team into southern Afghanistan, and they made me the team leader of that, and that was Foxtrot Team, and we went in and linked up with a guy named Gul Aga Shirzai, the former governor of Kandahar, who was he was already in Kandahar province with an armed force, and then from there. We uh, planned and, and had a military operation, our goal being the capture of Kandahar City. So just um, just for reference, so you guys went into Kandahar, uh, but you, you weren't with uh, Karzai at this point. You guys were separate from that. No, uh, Karzai Echo Team was up further. They were more. They, they started in Tarankot, which is more south-central Afghanistan. They went into that area because uh, that's where uh, Karzai had a lot of supporters, and the idea was they'd go in there, and they would raise up a force, a bigger force than what he had, and then campaign down to Kandahar. Mm. Whereas my team, Foxtrot team, we went into, we were already in Kandahar province uh, in a place, we started out in a place called Shinare Valley. That's where Shirzai's base camp was. And then he had a, already had a force on the ground of several hundred people. And, uh, and we campaigned from the southeast of Kandahar city uh, first, we ended up having to capture a village right on Highway 4 that connects Kandahar City to Pakistan, which is, was being used by Al-Qaeda to go back and forth. And so we captured that village of being held by a, a Taliban uh, garrison and, we, and captured that. We cut that line of communication and, uh, and within, a, within a few hours, we had captured or killed uh, several uh, uh, Al-Qaeda members who, were, who weren't aware that we had occupied that village. And then we... Then from that point on, to get into Kandahar City, the problem we had was that the Kandahar airport lay between us and the city, and that was being held as a strong point by al-Qaeda and, and Taliban. And it took us about 10 days to reduce that down so we could get past it. Now, basically, uh, the SF team, the, the Special Forces 5th Group team, uh, for 10 days sat there and called in airstrikes on, on the uh, airport. And Car uh, Shirzai's guys uh, did probes and uh, had some firefights with the uh, with the, those guys holding the airport. And eventually we were able to get it down to the point where we could get past them and move into the city. And there was a, um, 
an ODA that was along with uh, Echo team that was with Karzai as well, right? I, there was a kind of a famous story uh, about that o- ODA where they ended up. Uh, there was like a pretty yeah. bad uh, incident where an airstrike Tragic. was called in their position. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was five seven four. Yeah. Uh, my team, the, the ODA that was with me was five eight three. The ODA that was with Echo team was five seven four, and I knew all those guys because I'd been with them in Pakistan when I was with Echo team, so I got to. Got to know them, uh, some some more than others, and um, yeah, what happened with them was uh, tragically, uh, and I wasn't there, so I want to make sure that it's clear I was not there. But I have talked to people who were there, and I also have read accounts of it. And basically, as you say, it was an, an accidental, it was a technical problem. Uh, a command and control element, a special forces command and control element, had joined uh, that team with Karzai, and they had. Uh, they just gotten there the day before that next morning for reasons I, I don't fully understand. Uh, they had one of their guys take over, uh, the calling in, uh, close air support. And right. there wasn't any attacks going on or anything at the time. Uh, but, uh, the, when the, the guy who, who took over that responsibility, who was a member of that command and control element, he was under the direction of a, the deputy commander of that, command and control element. He did it, made a technical error when he was calibrating the uh, device he was using to range find. And uh, he ended up uh, calling fire in onto their own position. And uh, it, it you know, killed three of the three Americans were killed. Uh, and it, uh, it wounded and killed many, killed many Afghans and wounded many Afghans. It also uh, slightly wounded uh, Karzai, there were no agency guys didn't get, get, didn't get wounded. They were a little bit away from that observation post when the, the strike happened. But yeah, it was a very tragic, um, event. Yeah. I remember, um, reading about it and, um, you know, obviously there was like some documentaries where they, they touched on it a little bit, uh, like documentaries talking about the, the beginning of the conflict in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that that effect that actually had some impact on 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 our team because we were again we were both heading toward Kandahar, and and I, I my feeling and I say this in the book I felt that the, that that my headquarters would have preferred for uh, Echo Team, who was with Hamid Karzai, who was you know going to be the guy that we really thought was going to, uh, you know, was the guy that we thought would be the guy to have. An, take over Afghanistan, that he, under his leadership, uh, we, that Afghanistan would have its best chance of, uh, stability and that sort of thing. And cause he was a very well-respected Pashtun. And so my, my feeling was my headquarters, even though they didn't explicitly say this, they would have preferred that, that, that team echo team with Karzai and Karzai leading the charge, so to speak, get into Kandahar first, just for political reasons. But when they were hit by that, that happened like within the day, just the day before uh, we made the decision we could get into Kandahar. And I knew, you know, we knew that they were going to, they were going to be delayed because of that, that, that hit. They had to get a new uh, ODA in there with them, this, that, and the other. But we, at the same time, we realized it looked like we could get into Kandahar. We, our recon element had gone in, looked like the uh, Al Qaeda had fled, Taliban had fled. And, and we knew we had to get in there as soon as possible. So we just made the decision. We can't wait. We need to roll in there. 
and that's what we did. We occupied the, the governor's palace in downtown Kandahar. And then the next day, elements of, of Echo Team started coming down, and they, they actually occupied uh, Mullah Omar's uh, compound kind of on the western outskirts of, of Kandahar. And, and so we both were there within a couple of days of each other. And and bringing up uh, Mullah Omar, at this point, were you guys, was he considered like a, a target of interest or a person of interest? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the morning, well, the night before we, we we rolled in, we were again occupying this village called Taktapul right there on Highway 4. And uh, the, the night before we left that village to go into Kandahar, we got a communication from our headquarters saying, hey, we, we got some intel saying that uh, Mu Omar is trying to make a break for it, and he's probably coming, going to be coming in a small convoy, trying to get through through uh, the areas that you guys are located. You know, be alert for him, keep a sharp eye out for him. So, you know, we we, we did. We notified all the Afghans and said, hey, you know, we're expecting somebody to come through here. Nothing, nothing happened. Uh, but the next morning, uh, we got another communication that said, well, there was a uh, about 20 kilometers from where we were located that the air force had hit a small convoy that they thought may have been that night that they thought may have been Mullah Omar's com- convoy. And they asked a uh, Foxtrot team to go and uh, check out and see if we can determine if, if uh, Mullah Omar was among the dead. Well, we were right at, literally at the moment of rolling into Kandahar. So I didn't want to delay that any. And so what I had to do, I split it up and asked one of my uh, officers to take some Afghans with him and to uh, go to the, the coordinates that were given and see what he could, they could find out. And so they did. They, they went and uh, went to that uh, bombing site and found the convoy and were able to find the bodies. Uh, but uh, Mullah Omar was not one of the, those killed in that convoy. And uh, meantime, we had rolled into, into Kandahar and, and that, that element joined us later. So just just for the audience, uh, Mullah Omar is one of the uh, the founders, or if he, I don't know, maybe he was one of the founders or the actual founder of the Taliban. Yeah, he's he's basically uh, the yeah you could say he's a spiritual leader of the Taliban, uh, Mullah Omar, and uh, and uh, bin bin Laden had actually pledged his allegiance to Mullah Omar, and Mullah Omar was was one who basically had made the decision to um, give sanctuary to bin Laden when he. When he'd gone into Afghanistan, and now there's no evidence that I'm aware of that um, that Mullah Omar knew anything about the 9/11 attacks that were being planned uh, and were carried out. But the fact that that he and his movement, the Taliban, gave sanctuary to uh, Al Qaeda and would not after 9/11, and we negotiated with them. I say we, the U.S. government, uh, tried to convince them to uh, either give up. Uh, capture and, and give up Al Qaeda that were in their country to us, or get out of our way and let us come get them. And the Taliban refused to do either one of those two things. And that's that's really the only reason we went to went to war and engaged with the with the Taliban. Our, our mission really was to get Al Qaeda, not 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 to even deal with the Taliban. But we had to deal with the Taliban because they were giving sanctuary, uh, and ba- essentially they joined forces with Al Qaeda at that point. Right, and and. I think uh, Bin Laden pledging his allegiance to Mullah Omar. Um, I, I don't think if much was known about it then, but uh, later on, as you know, ISIS kind of emerged, and um, you know, there was a whole big debate about 
uh, who is who is the true, you know, the, the caliphate and the, the leader of, uh, you know, this potential caliphate. And mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the Al-Qaeda leadership were saying if, if anyone is that person, then it should be Mullah Omar, as they had pledged their allegiance to him. Um, and, you know, but there, yeah. there, that's a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of different kind of things were going on there. But Yeah, yeah. Of course, Mullah Omar ended up uh, dying, but he died. Uh, it was two years before anyone knew that he had he had died, but uh, that was years you know years later after the nine eleven thing. But uh, when was he killed? No, he did. He wasn't killed. He died. Uh, he died in a hospital in Pakistan. And you know, uh, I, I'd have to Google it right now. I can't remember uh, what year it was, but it was. He died two years before we. It was determined that or discovered that he had actually. Um, was 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 dead wow. and that that created a, a a problem for Taliban because uh it kind of created you know who's going to take power and that kind of thing and and they uh they had some division within the movement uh, because of that but uh yeah he he actually is uh you know deceased and has been deceased for quite a quite a while at this point oh wow okay yeah so okay so now kind of Moving forward past that incident uh, where you guys where you sent another team out there to check it out, mm-hmm. now you guys had entered Kandahar at this point. Yeah, at that point we had uh, gone into Kandahar uh, basically unopposed. At that point, uh, the the city was quiet. The uh, we knew that for for days before us getting in there that the Al Qaeda and Taliban were were trying to get out of the city. And, you know, kind of melt into the local populace, if you will, or otherwise escape to other parts of Afghanistan or other countries. And we knew that they were, that was going on. And by the time we got there, it was very quiet. And uh, we took over the, the, the governor's compound, which is where uh, they had occupied it up until then, uh, until they fled. And we immediately began uh, doing raids on safe houses where we knew that Al Qaeda had been. And, you know, with the goal of, of possibly capturing uh, some more Al Qaeda, uh, but we figured they would probably be hard to find and be gone. But also just capturing documents and things like that uh, that had intelligence value to them. And, and we did we actually made one very major intelligence uh, capture, and that was uh, we, we, we captured the plans for a Al Qaeda attack against the USS Carl Vinson, which, of course, is a nuclear uh, nuclear uh, powered aircraft carrier that was going to be attacked in Singapore. And we found that we, we got the casing photos, video casings, uh, sketches, the whole plan of attack to include the cell phones for the Al Qaeda members who were going to carry out the attack in Southeast Asia. And that was, uh, of course, relayed immediately uh, to the appropriate authorities. And within, took them a couple months, but within a couple months, they had. Uh, arrested all of those members of, of that of that team and that attack plan attack was neutralized and at this point um, were you guys already aware of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed yeah yeah he was he was a he was a known known quantity in terms of uh, an al-qaeda member but but uh, again our focus of course we were looking for any al-qaeda there but we weren't specifically after him uh, although we would have Love to have uh, captured him. We, you know, we were look. We did capture, by the way, uh, Foxtrot team and, and the Afghans that were with us. To be correct on this, they were the ones that actually did the actual capture. But in that village, 
that we occupied, Toctopool, at one of the roadblocks we threw up, we captured the personal bodyguard and uh, driver for Bin Laden, a guy named Salim Hamdan. And we didn't know that's who he was at the time we captured him. All we knew is he was Al-Qaeda and he had a trunk full of uh, service-to-air missiles that he was driving from Pakistan back to, to Kandahar. And it was only – actually, I didn't find out for another couple of years that that was actually Bin Laden's uh, bodyguard that we had captured at that time. But he went to he went to Gitmo, and he ultimately was the first guy that was going to be prosecuted by the tri tribunal, the military tribunal. And that his case went to the Supreme Court, and he actually won his appeal. Wow. And basically, it basically meant they had to uh, they had to redo how they were doing the, the tribunal system. He didn't get he wasn't freed, but uh, and he ended up serving like seven years. And but he ultimately was convicted of um, you know support to a terrorist group but they gave him credit for time served and somewhat to my surprise he was actually released um after serving about i think it was about seven years and he's he's a free man now in yemen wow wow that's pretty crazy yeah yeah and uh, anyway his case though uh, was uh, something like rumsfeld versus hamden and it went up to the Supreme Court. It was the first case that that went went in up before that tribunal. So did that did that move from Gitmo to the states or? No, that was being done down at uh, at Gitmo. That was okay. that was where it was taking place. And the, and the other thing that we did legally, if you want to talk about legal cases, was we also captured uh, the application form that uh, Jose Padilla, the dirty bomber, you may have heard of him. Um, yeah, who yeah. He, he had applied and had made a written application to Al Qaeda to be a member, and wow. among the documents that we captured was his application form. And that, and uh, a teammate of mine, uh, a guy by the name of Mark, would uh, would a couple of years later, after the fact, testify in his trial as to the uh, chain of custody of that document, and they used that document to help convict him of support to terrorism. And and he was, if if I remember correctly, he was captured in the United States, right? Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, I believe he was. I think I can't remember which city. I think he was. Was he Chicago? Chicago I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, Chicago. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there was. Um, I think there's a movie coming out about it. If if, I, if I'm not, not mistaken, but there was a um, FBI officer, and uh, I want to say. Uh, I, I forget what agency the other guy belonged to, but they were trying to uh, kind of run this down. Uh, and I think they were specifically going after Khalid Sheikh Mohammed um, even even before the, the towers fell as he was connected to the, the first World Trade Center bombing. Yeah, he, he was he was, you know, one of their operation planners. And, uh, you know, he ultimately, of course, was was captured in in, in Pakistan um, and and. Uh, is, you know, the famous photographs of him being dragged out of his apartment looking pretty disheveled. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he was um, there. I don't I, I think I've heard of this movie. I can't think of the name of it. The only movie I can recall the name of right now is the one that just came out. It's still out right now. That one at 12 Strong, which is about um, right. uh, the, the SF team, one of the SF teams <clears throat> up in the north that worked with Dostum. And I had, a, I had a friend of mine who was up there. Uh, an agency officer who was with a team that was the agency part of the team that was that was with Dostum up there and, with, and was was involved in all those events. 
Yeah, so um so so after you guys had uh, captured uh bin Laden's uh one of his bodyguards or drivers uh and, and then what what was happening after that? Well, uh well again, that happened that happened early on, it happened right after we got into that village and uh again, I knew that when we first occupied that village uh, that that was going to be a really good opportunity to capture al-Qaeda because um, they wouldn't know that we were there necessarily. And uh, and that's what happened. They were continuing to try to use that highway. And so they were surprised when they tried to drive up through that town and little town and they were stopped and detained. Most most of the ones actually fought it out and were killed. Uh, but we captured um, we captured three actually, and uh, one of them being Bin Laden's driver, another individual, and the, and uh, the first the first person we captured actually um, uh, had a pretty uh, interesting uh, episode with him, in that I they captured him on a roadblock, and I was called saying, hey, come, come. the Afghans came and told me, said, hey, come out here, we got we got. Uh, we got an Al Qaeda member, and that was our focus. Of course, when we went in there, we were, and I told the I, I told Shirzai, I said, you know, our our main goal here is 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 um, is Al Qaeda. If you guys come across any foreigners, you're to detain them, and uh, and because we knew they would probably be Al Qaeda at that point. There weren't a lot of foreigners in Afghanistan at that point, uh, and so when I, they called me to come out there, when they captured this guy, and I started out my, myself and one of the Afghans, the guy that spoke English. Um, who's kind of my right-hand man, we were walking out toward a roadblock when uh, this group emerged, a group of the Afghan fighters we were working with came around the building, and unbeknownst to us, they had decided they were going to bring a prisoner to us. And so they, so they, this group of fighters come around the building, and they're kind of in an agitated state, and I really didn't know what I was looking at. I was looking at this little mob, really, and, and trying to figure out what was going on. I knew they were friendlies. But there's something about the scene that just kind of made me a little nervous. And uh, then I spotted that they, oh, there's a prisoner. But they hadn't, they hadn't uh, detained, detained him in any way. They were just bringing him along. They kind of had him by the scruff of his neck. One of them was kind of just bringing him along. But he, his hands were free. Uh, he was not restrained in any way. And by the time I spotted him, he had seen me. And, uh, and as soon as I looked at him, as soon as our eyes met, he reached down and tried to grab the AK out of the Afghan who was walking beside him. He tried to grab his AK out, and he, and they be, began a struggle. This is about 50 feet from me, and they began in a struggle over this gun. And uh, there was, you know, there were all these Afghans around, uh, and this guy was fighting like the Dickens to get this gun. Uh, and he, I could tell it, you know, he wanted that gun. He wasn't going to give it up. And uh, after. After really one at one point the, the gun came loose from his grip, but then he grabbed it again. But when he grabbed it again, he grabbed the barrel, and he literally had the gun by in the barrel. And he's still trying to pull it from the Afghan, and the Afghan just decides to let him have it, and he, he basically opens up on him point blank, and uh, and sh- and kills him, shot him uh, point blank range, and, and killed the this this guy that we just captured. So uh, which was a big disappointment because. We were wanting to capture people. We wanted to, uh, you know, have them interrogated, and uh, but there was nothing that could be done. The only thing that could be done at that point was to the Afghans had to get better at how they handled their prisoners, and so they right. did get better. And uh, and that did, that kind of episode didn't happen with anyone else we captured. And and just for kind of for the audience, like reference for the audience, 
a lot of these Al Qaeda guys were not Afghanis, right? They were uh, from the Middle East, uh, from other. No, places. no, no. Exactly. They were, uh, you know, the yeah Taliban. Yes, they were. They were from. They were Afghans. But the Al Qaeda. No, they're they're basically most of them are are Arabs. Um, you had some that might have been members that were from like Chechnya and places like that, but. Uh, they had their own group too. They had their, they were uh, Al Qaeda affiliated. They really weren't Al Qaeda. But yeah, most of the Al Qaeda members were Arabs. Uh, you know, there other other there are some other nationalities there, but the, those are small compared to the Arab population. And these these there were a lot of Yemenis that were in Al Qaeda. A lot of Saudis, as you know, most of the, if not all the Saudis, uh, all the attackers in 9/11 were were Saudi, I believe, right. or the vast majority of them. So uh, you had some Moroccans, like we we. You know, through our bombings and stuff, there were a number of people, a number of bodies that were found and, and that had documents on them. And a lot of these, uh, a lot were Yemenis, a lot were uh, Saudis. Uh, there were some Moroccans there, t- Turkish uh, members as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's who made up the uh, the Al Qaeda that we were dealing with. Right. So these guys were were foreigners to Afghanistan, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, I think that's kind of a popular misconception that uh, people have about uh, America's involvement there. Um, you know, when you're talking about like uh, people who have maybe a uh, a negative view of it or kind of an opposed view of, of what was taking place there. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think uh, you're absolutely right. They they were not they were they were not uh, natives to Afghan Afghanistan at all. And uh, they had attacked, basically had attacked the United States using Afghanistan as a sanctuary. And as I mentioned before, that's why we weren't really, quote, against uh, Taliban initially. That wasn't not that we liked that regime particularly, but we we they we they weren't behind the 9-11 attacks. The Taliban wasn't. The Al Qaeda was. But because the, the, the Taliban government, remember, they were a government at the time, they uh they gave support to Al Qaeda and they did not assist us in any way. And they opposed us. And that's why we ended up going to war with the Taliban. But that was not our goal initially. Our, I mean, our real goal was, was to smash Al Qaeda. Right. Right. So now you guys are, um, throughout the duration of your time in uh, Kandahar, you guys are just running these sort of, uh, killer capture type of operations. Well, it was it was basically we were primarily doing raids that were designed to hopefully capture. I mean, anyone you know, if anyone would, would have been killed, that would have been because they they weren't going to give up. Right. Uh, but we preferred prisoners just because of the intel value. But we were it what because most of the guys, I mean, Al Qaeda had pretty much fled by the time we finally got in the city. So really, what was left was uh, documentation. Uh, that's that's what was left behind. And that's what we were capturing at the, or finding at these uh, safe houses. We also had some Afghan volunteers who came in who brought us uh, information. In fact, we had one that basically uh, probably saved most of our lives that of, the, of us who were in um, Kandahar at the governor's palace. Uh, he came in and told us that that very night that explosives which were buried in the roof of uh, one of the two main buildings were going to be detonated and it, and uh, if that had happened what what was going to happen that night was going to be a banquet and and uh, it was at the eat of Ra- I mean it was the end of Ramadan Eid al-Fitr was in and 
the breaking of the fast was going to take place and Shirzai, the, the, the Afghan leader we were supporting, was going to have a major um, a major banquet there with all the tribal leaders, with all of us Americans there to celebrate the end of Ramadan. And, uh, the, and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda who had occupied that palace had really thought this through and in a, a month before and we learned this from the guy who came in and told us about the explosives a month before uh this this in the ramadan they had said you know if we have to leave if we get driven out of here by by uh Shirzai or karzai and the americans they're probably going to have a celebration here at the end of ramadan so they with that foresight they actually planted 2500 pounds of explosives in the roof of the building where the banquet over the banquet hall and and uh and they because they'd done it so far in advance there was no evidence of any disturbance of the the, the roofs there are covered with dirt these mounds of dirt and so there was uh, that's where they buried the explosives and they were going to be command detonated that night at the banquet fortunately this walk-in came in i was the one that debriefed him and he said told us about these explosives had he not come in uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I'd be here talking to you right now. Uh, and, and it would have been a huge disaster for us, for the Americans in our effort, especially in the South, because it would have basically taken out the, the tribal leadership that had been fighting against the Al Qaeda and been allies of ours. It would have taken out us, the, the SF presence that was there, the agency presence that was there, uh, or most of it. And so it would have been a huge blow uh, to what we already what we had accomplished at that point. Yeah, and you know, I think that uh, you know that bit right there that you shared really kind of illustrates uh, how um, experienced some of these guys were, some of these groups were, and really that they weren't amateurs in in some ways. And I think oh, oh no, you know, it's a yeah. popular misconception that people have, um, like. Um, you know, there, there was a, uh, you know, the, the situation that took place in Africa last year in October where the, uh, special forces team was ambushed and killed. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, Al Qaeda released a, a propaganda video where they had taken the, the footage of, from the helmet cam of, of one of the soldiers who were killed and, um, you know, they released it online and, and, uh, you know, I believe it was Nat, Nat Geo just put out something kind of honoring them in their memory. And so people were kind of talking about it again on social media. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, one guy commented, he left a comment on, on one of my posts saying something like, oh, you know, how do these guys, uh, you know, these guys are supposed to be the, you know, the top fighters in the world. And, how, you know, how are they losing to these farmers and stuff like that? And I just think it's just kind of a, a line that you see over and over again from people who kind of oppose the efforts of uh, the American government in some of these places. But it, to me, when I see people write these kind of things or say these kind of things, to me, it just illustrates how little they actually know about the enemy and, and some of these conflicts. Before we continue the conversation, I'd like to give a thank you to my sponsors over at BioWave. BioWave is a non-opioid way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. It's VA-recognized, VA-prescribed, FDA-cleared, and made in America. BioWave is used by over 30 VAs and several professional sports teams. BioWave is used by Naval Special Warfare, the Pentagon, Walter Reed, hundreds of college sports teams, and several professional sports teams. 
If you are a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, visit BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost. No, Al-Qaeda is a, a very professional group of fighters. I mean, they, they uh, one thing that the, the Northern Alliance had learned uh, when they were up against uh, the, the Al-Qaeda, were these, these guys could shoot. I mean, they had trained. They were trained, you know, they had trained to shoot. They were trained in tactics. They weren't a, a ragtag bunch of, of people. They had been through training, most of them had. And so they were, they were a formidable force to be reckoned with and still are, uh, but not, uh, fortunately, you know, we've managed to keep them at bay in terms of no major attacks against the U.S. Um, at this point. But uh, no, they were, you're absolutely right in you know, what, you're, what you're saying, uh, John. They, they, were, uh, they, were, they were professional fighters. They, they knew what they were doing and they weren't to be trifled with. They needed to uh, respect, respect their ability as, as fighters. Yeah, and they um, they uh, they assassinated a uh, I believe it was a, a Northern Alliance leader, political leader. Yeah, yeah, Warlord. they absolutely they assassinated Ahmad Shah Massoud, who yeah. had been the leader. He, yeah, the, he was a very charismatic, very capable leader, and and they did that just a couple of days before the nine eleven attacks. And and did they do that as or from what the U.S. government understands about it? Did they do that as? They figured he might be part of the response, or that was just a part of their ongoing conflict with the Northern Alliance. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, they did have an ongoing conflict, but I, but the you know the leadership of, of Al Qaeda knew what was coming, what was in store, what was being planned as far as the 9/11 attacks, and they probably again with their foresight and thinking it through, they probably thought you know when we pull this attack off, the United States is probably going to turn to the Northern Alliance to try to help them. To come after us. I mean, we, you know, they, 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 they aren't. They, they have some strategic thinking uh, within their organization, and so they probably thought about that and said, "How can we damage the Northern Alliance to make that less likely to happen or be less effective?" And that would be and one way to do that would be to take out Massoud, and because uh, we were worried once that happened uh, at the agency, we were concerned that okay, is the Northern Alliance going to be as capable? as it had been under his leadership. And so that, that was a real factor. Right. Right. And I, I think, you know, again, it just kind of illustrates uh, some of their, their capabilities and, um, you know, ab- ability to, you know, strike ahead and, and kind of think ahead and, and get ahead of the game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So in your book, uh, you know, as well as detailing, everything we talked about, but kind of in, in more detail, you also talked about kind of uh, looking at it from a, a larger picture and, and gave some of your thoughts on the, in the conflict in general. Can we talk about some of that? Yeah, that was actually the last chapter. Um, I didn't intend to do that, but it was at my publisher's request that I, I write a kind of a, a postscript to it, looking back on it. Uh, because again, my book covers, it, it ends essentially, uh, basically at, at in in December of 2001 but I added this um, postscript kind of to say okay kind of not only say this exactly lessons learned but my, my my view of you know what we've done right what we've done wrong or, or, or should we even be there in the first place now and um, you know first as we've talked about I, and what I say in that is that you know we went to Afghanistan with one mission and that was to 
destroy al-Qaeda. We really didn't even go there to overthrow the Taliban regime. Turns out we had to do that in order to to, to rid uh, Afghanistan of an effective al-Qaeda presence. But um, so it, since we, we had great success initially in Afghanistan, working with the local, the local tribals, particularly the, uh, up in the North, Northern Alliance and also the Pashtuns that we worked with in the South, we had you know, good success working with them, letting them take the lead in the fight. Yes, we gave them critical support, air support uh, and all that kind of stuff, but great success in doing it. Uh, and, and this is something, a point I make is that, you know, people talk about the invasion of Afghanistan, U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And my view is there never was a U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. We sent we sent some a handful of small teams in to work with indigenous fighters there. And uh, and we and through their efforts on the ground, that's how the Taliban was overthrown. We didn't. It wasn't a conventional force invasion coming in there like we did in Iraq a, cu- a couple of years later. You know, so my view is there never was an invasion, but that mission that we had really uh, essentially has has morphed from that mission of you know destroying Al Qaeda, which was done pretty early on. And yes, I, I understood why we were putting forces in. Uh, Right after that, that's when we started sending a lot of forces in there because they, they did need to stabilize that country because they'd been in, in conflict for years. And, and, I, and I supported that. I actually, I actually had hopes for Afghanistan. And, and things have improved. I will say that things have definitely improved from what they were. But, uh, and I had hopes for them. And I, I liked Karzai. I got to know Karzai when I was with him on the Echo team. And um, I liked him. And I, I wanted the best for their country. So I, I myself actually supported us going in there, putting more forces in there initially to help stabilize. But uh, I know I didn't foresee that the mission would continue to, you know, it, that created some this momentum that has gone on for many years. It went on for many years where it became, even though President Bush explicitly said it would not become this, it did become a nation building exercise. And that's a whole nother animal. That's a whole nother kettle of fish, so to speak, to use another metaphor. Uh, it, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a much different problem than what we went in there to do uh, in terms of our counterterrorist mission. Uh, trying to nation build a place like Afghanistan is pretty darn hard to do. It's, uh, it's a very primitive country. It's a very poor country. It's a very ethnically diverse country linguistically diverse, geographically diverse, and it has no history of a, of a strong, effective central government. It's had a central government. There was a period of time when there wasn't a central government with a king, and but but the power still pretty much resided locally at the different local levels. And and what I think where we went off base and what I say in my book is we, we kind of lost track of that. And, and we tried to kind of make Afghanistan in, in our image as like a federal centralized government. And my view, this is just me talking, uh, is that just doesn't work there. They have no history of that, no culture of that. Right. And, and the Pashtuns have, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they are the, um, the oldest, uh, group of, of people on the planet in terms of, uh, you know, having like customs and stuff like that. Um, Yeah. They're, they're very, they have a very, uh, long, rich history 
Uh, and they, the, the Pashtuns, of course, make up, they're the biggest minority group in Afghanistan. They're over 40% of the population. They're bigger than any other group. Uh, I think the Tajiks are next. I don't know. I don't remember the exact thing. I think they're around 30%. I, I don't know the details. I'm not a, not a historian, if you will, but I, I do know that but the Pashtuns are the largest group. And historically, the Pashtuns have been the ones that have pro- produced the kings that did uh, kind of rule, if you want to say, did have a central form of government. Um, but but the Pashtuns themselves of the tribe are located there, you know, to the east and south, uh, generally speaking. There's some other pockets of them here and there, but in, in Afghanistan. And and so so they have a very, uh, their, their culture is very, I'll say, well-developed, if you will, in terms of its traditions and all that. Uh, of course, they're Muslims. Uh, and... Um, and, and so, you know, they, they don't, because again, it's a, still a poor country, still a primitive country, uh, trying for a country like the United States to come in and, and kind of replicate itself there and to a certain extent, it, it's just a, a difficult proposition. Right. And, and something that requires years and years and a lot of resources and, and effort to uh, to do it. And that's if it's done correctly which is not easy to do as well given the um you know the way things work uh, in terms of uh, different people taking control of of, you know commands and stuff like that yeah uh, you know people trying to kind of leave their their mark on the situation uh versus just like a continuation of the uh the overall strategy kind of thing yeah it wasn't like we're trying to restore something that had existed before because it didn't exist so that's that's the problem. I, I think we need to, to kind of simplify a lot more. I mean, fortunately, we don't have we, we no longer have 100,000 troops there. Right. We're, we're, we although we up, ramped up a little bit there. It, you know, it's still fairly low numbers compared to what it was at, at one point. And I think that's that's good. I think what we do there, we need to do on small scale, you know, militarily speaking, uh, it should be on a small scale, not on a large scale. And um, and also even even our, our, our de- any development projects should should be on that. And we have to have to you know we have to let the Afghans. We, yeah, we got to help them to a certain extent, but they ultimately are going to have to decide what their country is going to be like. And um, and I think you know it's going to be a long time before that gets resolved. That's not to say we can't play a role. And shouldn't play some role, but I think we should not plan on playing a major role there. Right, and, and the the thing is, is you know when they first had decided to go in on on the level of the policymakers, the the whole idea of the global war on terror was to go in quickly, go after who we have to go after, and then get out, and then it just you said became something completely different and yeah. um and and things really I, I guess there were some successes in 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 many ways and then mm-hmm. there were a lot of failures as well in many ways and well, um, well, well things i don't want to and i certainly don't want to paint a totally bleak picture here the uh i mean the country is 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 better off their 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 health situation uh you know if you look at their mortality rates and stuff like that it is much improved than what it was the education level is particularly among girls, young girls being able to go to school. They're, you know, they're they are going to school, uh, and so you you got better education going for again for the the girls, uh, and, and the edu- and the health is better. So there, I mean, there's some significant 
improvements that we can point to that we had a big a big hand in helping establish other people that too there are other countries that got involved too in, in those areas but um you know we shouldn't feel like we haven't accomplished anything we, we we have accomplished something and i think we've kind of put them up on the right footing so that they can go forward it's going to be hard but uh I, I think that we we definitely and i think i think and president trump even said when he came to office he had some misgivings about how much he wanted to commit to Afghanistan. And I think he was wise to, to, to feel that way. Yeah. Um, actually. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, um, so Dwayne, so your book, uh, Foxtrot and Kandahar, is it available everywhere books are sold or where can people go if they want to pick up a copy of that? Yeah, it, it's, you know, any major book retailer, you should be able to find it. It's, uh, in hardback, it's in an uh, uh, ebook version as well. You know, Kindle or Nook or any of those kind of readers that you have, you should be able to to get it. In fact, I, 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 the publisher just um, has put it out. I don't think it's quite. It shows it as being out, but I don't think the softback is quite available yet. Even though you can see it, like if you go to like Amazon or something, you'll see it shows a, a soft cover. But I don't think it's quite available yet. So yeah, anywhere you. You know, go to buy books. You should be able to to, to find it. Yeah, I, I haven't read the book yet. Uh, you know, I definitely plan to get a copy of it and um, okay. you know and read it. Uh, as I, you know, I find these things fascinating, uh, especially coming from a guy like yourself, you know, who was there on the ground and involved in uh, a lot of those processes. Um, so, you know, Dwayne, once again, I just want to thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, I appreciate you uh, sharing your stories and experiences with the audience. And uh, thank you for your service as well. Well, oh, thank you, John. Thank you for having me. I really uh, think you got a, a good program going here. And uh, I wish, wish you the, the greatest success in the future. Thank you.